So the next prophecy is in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, from verse 10 all the way to the end. So again, just to update those that do not know, we uh, the Lord has brought to my attention that there are certain dates in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah. Huh? Yeah. And um, so a few years ago, he started leading me to understand the yearly cycle. So there's still, okay, in the Old Testament, there was seasons and cycles, and it was punctuated by the feasts. He came and fulfilled the feasts, but the feasts were foreshadowing of the seasons that is flowing from the kingdom of heaven into our world. Everything in the Bible is an unfolding cycle. Nothing exists outside of those cycles. Literally nothing. He set the seasons and the times in place, and everything moves according to the cycles. And so what we do is we look at these <coughs> prophecies, in the book of Haggai and Zechariah, mm. and this helps us to understand why things are happening in our lives mm. and in the world around us. Have you noticed how certain parts of the year seem to be the same year after year? Mm. There's harder times, there's times of testing, then there's times where there's a release and there's a flow of blessing. There's times when finances are tight mm. and then it releases again at a certain time of the year. Um, there's times when we have to work hard in prayer mm -hmm. to break through, and then there's times when we hardly have to do anything. Mm -hmm. So these are just the seasons, and we've noticed, for those that have been walking it out a few years, we've noticed that it's definitely, every year it's more or less the same. It can vary a few days with a few days or a few weeks when things are released and things change us, but it's the same over and over. Um, we definitely know that the hard time of the year, the difficult time of the year, was harder this year than any other year. <laughs> so we have to believe that the good part of the year is going to be better than other years. So read it for us. Okay. <clears throat> On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And finally we can pray in season, 
together regarding the Lord fighting against the powers and principalities that's been oppressing. So we have been praying for mercy, we've been praying for the Lord to bring certain things to a close, but we do not pray that the Lord will rise up in war until the season that He has set for that. So now we can pray, Father, we have seen the powers and principalities move to and fro upon the face of the earth. And they have been afflicting good people and righteous people. It's been a season and a time of the affliction of the righteous. We have seen a dark season, darker than many other years, where truth have been suppressed and there is no justice upon the earth. Justice has been withheld from fathers and from their children, from the widows and from the orphans uh, upon the earth, among all the nations, there's been injustice and oppression. And we have seen how powers and principalities have been waging a war upon the earth. Now, we pray in line with your word and with your will that you arise as mm -hmm. you do in season to bring order again until the appointed time that you have set for he who restrains to be taken out of the way. Mm. But as yet we believe that you are still restraining and therefore now we pray in the season for the restraining of the evil and the darkness that is upon the earth. We pray for the restraining of the evil one, the beast and mm. that old serpent for his plans that is formed against us not to prosper mm -hmm. until the time when you have said that you will no longer restrain. We pray that you will restrain in season and in time in the way that you have determined in your own perfect will. We thank you, Father Yahweh, that we trust in your will and your ways in all circumstances. We thank you in the name of Yahushua. Amen. Okay, so let's see how much of this we get done. We're going to just do a very practical thing. We have today. a very short list of scriptures, but we might not get through them all. Hopefully, we'll get through half. Well, we already knew by Tuesday we wouldn't get through them all. Yes, but so. we, we are full of faith and hope. <laughs> so we're going to start with Yahushua's salvation. Yes. That's a weird sentence. <laughs> If you had said it in Hebrew, we're going to start with Yahushua. It would be a double confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <clears throat> let's go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we'll read from verse 23. <laughs> you need to check that I'm reading the right thing. <laughs> Maybe I do my own teaching and he's just like, yes. <laughs> John chapter 12, verse 31. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to read from verse 23. 23, okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. But Yahushua answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. <clears throat> We're just going to read that verse for now. Never read just one verse. Okay, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. <coughs> read verse 27 and 28. Sorry, I'm interfering with your process. Then we'll pose the question and then you can answer the question. Okay, let's read the whole piece and then we'll go back. No, okay. just verse 27 and 28. Okay, let's read verse 27 and verse 28. 
Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to you this hour. Father, glorify your name. Let me read that verse as well. So we know that there's no person that will ever live that doesn't need salvation. Would you want to pose them the question? The question is, did Yahushua need salvation? Okay. Um, I'm going to read the rest until verse 31. Yes, now you can do whatever you want. Well, <laughs> not really. Free reign. <laughs> okay. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. <clears throat> Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Yahushua answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Okay, so let's go back to verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Historically, in... Most churches these days, and historically through uh, biblical understanding, it has been somewhat established that in this sentence, as Yahushua says, the hour has come, and even in, in the rest of this piece of scripture, the context, when he says the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, generally it's assumed and it has been established that he is referring to his crucifixion. The fact that he will be crucified, that he is going to take all the sin of the world into his body and put away the sin into the grave. <clears throat> but let's just for a moment really consider and look at the crucifixion moment. And consider whether this really could be the moment of his ultimate glorification. Where he's hanging on a cross, broken, hands and feet pierced, bloodied, his eyes full of sweat and tears, being humiliated and the clothes are, were torn from his body hanging in pain and then even the moments following where he has to take all of the sin of the world into him into his flesh could that really be the moment of his ultimate glorification so truly the image we have of when we think of him glorified I've heard some sermons where uh, it has been said that in the kingdom of heaven, Yahushua is actually still there with the crown of thorns in his head and blood running down his face. And the father looks at him and he's so well pleased with this image of his mutilated son. The reason they, they believe that is because they believe that the moment of his crucifixion is the moment of his glorification. But surely that cannot be the ultimate moment of his glorification, not in that state. <clears throat> you see, it is true that there is glorification on the cross when he does take all the sin of the world into his body and puts it into his flesh and the flesh is put into the grave but at the same time in the kingdom of heaven in eternity the son of man as the high priest appears 
before the Father, before the one God. And he brings an acceptable sacrifice. He brings the acceptable sacrifice. And now we have to remember, and we're going to read it soon, uh, that at the moment of judgment, all appear before his throne. And we understand there are scriptures, which we'll also look at, that says that after death, we must all appear before the judgment seat. And so if Yahushua came as a man, lived and died, then surely he himself must also appear for judgment, as must all of us. The only difference is, when he appears before the judgment seat, and remember he is also the judge, but when he appears before the judgment seat, he arrives with a perfect and acceptable sacrifice that is well-pleasing to the Father, and his sacrifice is accepted. When we appear before the judgment seat, what do we have? Well, you see, for us, during this lifetime, we were granted that which was always true, to be one with him. To have been made one with him. And so when we appear before the judgment seat, we appear in him, one with him. And so his acceptable sacrifice becomes our acceptable sacrifice. Now getting back to the question. So he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now we said, <clears throat> so verse 23 is naturally cannot be a direct reference to his crucifixion. It has to be a reference to the fact that he will be crucified, will lay down his life, take all of the sin of the world into him, be resurrected because his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. So if this piece of scripture isn't only, if he's not only referring to the moment of his crucifixion, and he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. See, when we thought the scripture was referring to his crucifixion, then we could understand that he would say, he's troubled. We could understand that there would be reason for him to say his soul is troubled. He doesn't necessarily want to go through the crucifixion, through the mutilation and the humiliation, through the pain, through the hectic reality of taking all of the sin of the world into his own body. And we thought that what he was saying is, oh, Father, if possible, I do not want to go through this, but this is the reason I'm here, so I will go through this, because that's the reason you sent me. Is that the way we always thought about it, or most of us would have? But what if he's not referring to the moment of his crucifixion? In verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. What if the hour he's referring to is the hour of judgment? Because remember, the day of the crucifixion is the same day as the day of judgment. We'll also look at that some more. It is the day of the glory of the Lord. And if it is that he's referring to judgment, because he needs to be judged the same as everyone else that ever lived, and he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? What is he saying when he says, Father, save me from this hour? Father, save me. If 
Father, save me. It is and it has always been the Father's salvation plan. I know that we rightfully refer to the Son of God, Yahushua, as our Savior. But the Bible states over and over that the Father is the Savior. And it's no different because they are one. Mm. But we also need to remember that it's the Father that saves. It's the Father that saves. It's His plan, His will. It's His salvation plan. And here we see that even His Son, Yahushua, says, Father, save me. Father, save me. And then He can say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Because He needs salvation from the Father just as we do, but he is also the salvation of the Father. So he's not contradicting himself. Then he says, we'll go to the connection, we'll, we'll, we'll connect that with the other important scriptures that confirm that. And then he says in verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Ever wonder what that means? And that's why that moment of his crucifixion, what the world didn't know, was that the world uh, was being drawn to the judgment seat of Messiah as they lifted him up on the cross. When else is he going to draw all the peoples to himself? At the judgment seat. It is the one moment in all of existence where every person that ever lived will appear in the sight of God. As they were crucifying him, the humanity themselves ushered in the very hours, the very reality of judgment. That's why it can say in John 3 mm. that he came for those who believes, And those who do not believe in him is already condemned. Remember that last week we said that we have to, in witnessing, we have to be aware of the book of life. In witnessing to the gospel, because it's the gospel of the kingdom, we have to be very aware of the judgment as, a very, as fundamental to the gospel. It is the good news. Um... Let's just see how that connects to the covenant. Do you want to go there now? Yes. Okay. Um, we died just hmm. okay. Let's go to Titus. Just pause for a moment. Just pause for a moment. He says... Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? What an important, important sermon. What an important lesson he's teaching us. Mm -hmm. So what he's troubling his soul is the fact that judgment is about to occur. And he's a man. He knows that according to the salvation plan, according to everything that was done in the plan of God, everything revolves around him being innocent, being righteous. But he had to walk out faith for that to be true. 
Remember, it's his faith. So see, faith exists because he established it. Faith exists because it sounds almost too logical to say he created faith. So do we get the idea that he created faith itself by being faithful? Mm. He had to walk it out. How did he walk it out? He had to live on earth. And then he had to come to the moment of judgment. And in that uh, final moments where the full reality, if anybody ever understood the judgment, it is him. And his response when he's faced with the reality of judgment is, Father, save me. He's not saying, remember, I'm righteous, remember, I'm perfect, remember, I'm innocent. Mm. Remember, I'm your son. Yeah, he doesn't even call that into the evidence presented in court. He says, Father, save me. It's the Father's salvation plan. Then he says, He says, Father, save me, but for this hour I came to this, for this purpose I came to this hour, so that the Father can be glorified. that the name of Yahweh can be glorified. So it casts a whole other light on judgment. See, we will come to the judgment hour so that the name of the Father can be glorified. Yes, He finished that work, but in our judgment, the, that will be the glorification. Remember that in Romans 8, he says that he called us, justified us, so that we can be glorified. How does that work? Remember, he says he'll, he'll share his glory with no one. Mm. And yet he says he'll glorify us. So it's in that moment with this perfect sacrifice. Remember in Ephesians, it says that we are, have been raised together with him. So this very understanding that he says, even him, perfectly, in his moment of coming face to face with judgment, a judgment day, he says, Father, save me. Now, if we can, by the Spirit, communicate that truth to anyone when we endeavor to witness to them, that would be effective. See how we need the Holy Spirit to supernaturally add to our effort. Because this is the aha moment, the light that comes up into our eyes moment when we grasp this. Take us to Titus. going to read from the very beginning. That's an interesting expression. <laughs> the very beginning of Titus. <laughs> but we'll see that is the, in the other context it's also true. We'll see from the scripture. Both is true. <laughs> you said it perfectly. The scripture is exactly that. Let's read from the beginning. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Yahushua HaMashiach, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. See? From the beginning. Okay. Um, do you want to start with that though, or should we do that and then go back? Okay, start then and go back. Okay. Our focus is on verse two. 
And it says, so, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Before time began. It's a huge statement. So this says that God promised eternal life before time began. That means, basically, before our Bibles start. For he said, let there be light. He had already promised eternal life. Before he created the heavens and the earth, sun, the moon, the stars, all the living creatures and us, he promised eternal life. So if he, yeah, so if he promised eternal life before he created anything, before time began, who did he promise to? Can't be that he promised it to us. We were only created in the end, near the end. <laughs> who did he promise to? And how could it be that he can promise eternal life before he's even started creating? Well, So, if we just look at the wording of this verse, a few key things. In hope, we all know that hope is quite an important word, especially when we get to the New Testament, because it has a very specific reference. We've trained our minds, remember? Mm -hmm. Hope. And then it says, God who cannot lie. So we see, okay, there's hope, God who can't lie, and God made a promise. This reminding anyone of another piece of scripture that has the same concepts embedded in it. Okay, now this is, we have said before, we will ask, we'll preach sometimes in a way of asking questions, but it's not a question that we need anybody to answer. It's for you to think in your head what your answers would be and what you do understand. But now she's actually asking for an answer. Let's see. Hmm. What was the question? So, can anyone else, or can anyone, think of another piece of scripture that has these specific elements in it of hope, God who cannot lie, and Him making a promise? So, you've got it? Anybody else got it? If you kind of think you know where it is, you don't have to answer, just kind of... If you, if you kind of, if the bells are ringing, you know it's there. Okay, so this brings us to the point of today's teaching. So what we're busy doing, and this is why we are looking at the scriptures the way that we are, is um, if we're going to witness, then there's some hard work that has to precede our witnessing. And we all want to witness. Put up your hand if you don't want to witness. So it is something that naturally will happen in us if we are godly if we are in Messiah, what, who is he? He's the witness. It means you're going to want to witness. Um, and the reason we're doing this specific uh, series of teachings is because we want to counteract the way that it's been working in the Christian world. Because we want to witness without preparation, without equipping. People run out there and they go, become witnesses because that's the great commissioning they think and what a mess humanity has made of that mm. nobody knows what the truth is anymore and you know what the main reason for it is it's because everybody had free reign to go witness and they're being obedient mm. in witnessing mm. yet nobody knows what the heck they're witnessing to it's a free fall so the point we're making is that we need to have firm anchors in the Word. We don't need to f memorize Scripture. the Scriptures, mm -hmm. but we have to understand the Scriptures. We've got to have the connections so that when we witness, we can find our way through some of the most important concepts in the Bible. And there is nothing really more important when it comes to witnessing than understanding the 
reference to covenant. And so this is not to let, uh, make anybody feel bad. We're just moving into a new season where we're now paying attention to the fact that it's going to take hard work. So all the hard work over the last few years has been for, uh, that you've been doing is for you to understand the basic framework of the plan of God. So basically what the Bible was about. Isn't it scary that we all have to start over after years of church and put in four years of hard work just to understand what the Bible was about? And we've done the work. Now, the next phase in our discipling, discipling, translated training, is to now also go toward the, the, the season where we are equipping specifically mm -hmm. and us being able to reference the most important places in the Scripture mm -hmm. if we are going to witness. Have you realized how difficult it is, actually? And when you, when you try and do it right and you actually reference the actual Word of God accurately in what we do, it's hard work and it's difficult. And I don't know about you, but I've always struggled to memorize scriptures. I do much better in understanding them. Okay? And I've encountered people from very, some of the big churches and they're well uh, taught in memorizing a few scriptures. But they don't understand the context. And so that can do a lot of harm. So we've laid down layers of context and understanding. Now we've come to the time when we are going to have to do the hard work to actually know where the scriptures are, understand the reference uh, anchors in the Bible so that we know exactly what we're saying. Mm. We'll make it easy for you over time. But we're just in on the releasing uh, bit of, of end of it. Okay. So I just want to <clears throat> uh, kind of add to what you're saying in a summary fashion. So uh, we have all, after years of hard work, like you said, come to quite a solid understanding of what the word says. And so we all know that we have a somewhat clear understanding in general of what scripture should be saying, what the truths are. But even if our understanding is perfect and crystal clear, we cannot just impose our understanding on another person when we witness. It has to be based on the word because the power is in the word. And we always run the risk of perhaps over time missing a detail or two or it changing some form in our mind and then our witness can become even dangerous. So we always, always refer back to the word. For us, we have a standard of no matter how well I think I know the scriptures, I always go back and check it again. And so when we say we don't, we're not expecting everyone to memorize every verse. And so when you witness just, you know, quote verses, but when we are going to explain any truth, then within ourselves, we need to know which specific piece of scripture we are explaining right now so that if if it should happen that I need to explain it from the word I know exactly where to go so that I can say see here's the scripture that I'm explaining to you this is what it says we cannot only explain something that we understand and we know somewhere in the Bible it says something like this I'm sure that makes sense but so just to clarify. and we've had time to practice this so, uh, how many of you have realized that if you try and explain your understanding, even if it's correct to other people, it doesn't bear much fruit? So, we've given everyone time to kind of learn the ropes the hard way. Because mm -hmm. that's what we want to do, and that's exactly what has developed in the church world. People want to explain their understanding to other people. Even if it's correct. Without proper scriptural reference, and then they just expect others to accept and believe what they said because they understand it. How many of you had to, have had to go see a pastor or a Germany and they just tell you, look, this is how it works, just believe me. It happens. You go to life groups and soul groups and whatever they call it and they basically go like, well, this is how it works. With a one verse scripture reference if, if any. 
and what they love is just to quote somebody that wrote it in a book somewhere and mm. because it was published that person must be right <laughs> and so the Bible isn't even referenced most of the time and so we want to now come into a place where we change that mm. we're going to discipline ourselves not to try and explain our understanding my understanding of the of how things work to another person even if we correct mm. okay I'll tell you why because even if you've been working through the teachings and you've been diligent how do you know that your understanding of what was taught is the whole understanding so we want to simplify it and bring it back to this scripture simply says this thing when we witness we want to be careful when we want to refer to more complicated um, uh, interpretation and uh, systematic unpacking of the word we would rather want to refer people to say the actual teaching that was done because that's why the fivefold ministers are there. So the saints have to, be, have to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Which means you have to be out there and actually um, witness to your relationship with the Lord, to your salvation, to His goodness and so forth. We have to do that. It's what we want to do. But when it comes to complicated teachings or the most, more complicated unpacking of the Word, it's better to do the intro work and then say, look, let's look at the proper teaching. Or we make a proper time to sit down with the Word. Most people won't want to do that. Or if they really want to have answers, then make an appointment with us for them. We're always willing to see people. And you can sit in. And then we partner and we make sure that it's right. If they don't want to, then you can continue to try and minister to them. But... Uh, most of the times that will go into a place where we keep trying to explain things to them and they don't want to accept it or they don't want to believe us because we don't refer them stringently back mm. to the actual scripture. But if you can show a person in the Bible, look, can you acknowledge this is what it says? Then they have to go yes or no. Mm. If a person says, I see it says but... They don't have the love of the truth. You're wasting your time. Then they're just resisting you for no reason. It's like the name. Mm. Um, the fact is that nobody has ever come back and endeavored to prove to us that the name of the Son of God is supposed to be Jesus Christ. The person that has heard the teaching on the name Yahushua Nobody's ever tried to prove us wrong. Never. They come back with other objections. So a popular one is they come back and say, yes, but you are um, harming, doing harm to the unity in the church. Mm. Or you're causing division. So we, we show them it's that the rich. actual historic, factual name of the Son of God as given by God to His Son, is Yahushua. Mm. And normally the response is, yes, but you're going to cause division. Yeah, it's unnecessary. You see where people will not come back and actually try and prove that His name should be Jesus. Because that can't be done. It's not possible. Mm. So this is where we want to reference properly. Okay, let's okay. move on. So, back to the question. A scripture that has specific these elements, hope, God who cannot lie, and God making a promise. Anyone want to attend? Mm, Perfect. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 6. But this is early days. This is some of the very first mm -hmm. things that we laid down to build understanding upon. And this is the... It's a big gun, this. Go for it. Okay. From verse 13 to verse 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. 
And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Yahushua, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you take time during the week in your quiet time, you go carefully work through this piece of scripture, you'll see how beautifully it connects with what we saw in John and what we're now seeing in Titus. And what is this all about, the covenant? What is the covenant about? These are very simple concepts that we can use in witnessing. And I promise you, if you speak to this with any person, remember that most of the times we're going to witness to Christians. Mm. I find that for some reason, God very seldomly brings total unbelievers on our way. We had the Irishman with us now for a while. That was interesting because he had no concept of anything. Mm. So we had to literally start. But you speak to any Christian about this concept, I can guarantee you they won't have a, a clue what you're talking about. So this makes this such a wonderful tool to use because you talk to any of them about this concept, no matter where they've been going to church, they're not going to know what you're talking about. And what is that very simple concept? It's the simplest of simple concepts. This whole piece of scripture is about this. That God the Father, according to so many scriptures, Romans 8 scriptures, for instance, had decided in himself how he was going to save the world. Now we saw in Titus that he promised eternal life before he created anything. Okay. Now we see this, and it looks very complicated, the anchor of our soul. Now, if it says it's the anchor <laughs> for our soul, how important is this piece of scripture? So this is the scripture, and this we always lay down very early in the days of discipleship. Why? It says it's the anchor of our soul. Now, how many of you know what it feels like to feel like a piece of driftwood on the open ocean in the worst storm that's ever raged on the ocean? I know what it feels like. Before I knew this secret in the Bible, that was my experience with God. Up and down and up and down. Then I throw up and then we go up and down again. <laughs> that was, okay, does it sound familiar? Who has had that experience with God? Okay, so this is what's been happening. What, and this is, this is an anchor for our soul. What does an anchor do? Stabilizes you. Keeps you in the place where you're supposed to be. So you want to anchor your boat so that if you come back tomorrow, it's still there where you left it. <laughs> so we carry on through life and we have to also pay attention to work, all the other matters of life. So we'd like when we return to the matter of faith for our faith to still be where we left it last. <laughs> yes. Now how many of you know what it feels like you come back to the point where you left your faith last and it's no longer there and you've got to spend the rest of the day looking for it it's like when i have to fix anything around the house a 10-minute job is going to take me three hours because i spend the most of the time looking for the stuff i need to do what i need to do because i didn't put it back where we were supposed to leave it okay so this is the anchor an anchor for our souls so how important is the scripture Answer this for yourself, quickly. How important is this scripture? If it's the anchor of us for our souls. Can we afford not to know it? And what will happen to us if we don't know it? What will happen to us if we forget about it? 
Okay, since the first time that we taught this to you, for those that were there, has any of you forgotten to refer this scripture when you needed it? Okay, see how we have to do this over and over because we need to come into a mindset where when I feel that I'm feeling a little bit lost, refer back to the anchor. Mm -hmm. What's the anchor? Okay, very, very simply. Before God created anything, So we know the sun is begotten. Mm. Nobody knows what that is. The Bible doesn't tell us. We just know that the Bible says so, so we believe it. Mm. That's what we know. So outside of time, before time or space existed, don't try and figure out where God was. There's no space yet. Nothing is framed. Okay? So just make peace with that piece of information. But anyway, within that reality... The Father has now begotten one that is as He is. Mm. And He starts to communicate to His Son everything. Everything that's in His heart, in His will, in His mind, everything that He has ever conceived, ever conceived of. Because they know each other perfectly. Mm. And so part of what he would have communicated to the son is his salvation plan. But wait a minute, nobody has sinned yet. Nobody has lived yet. And yet, he says to his son, we are going to create a wonderful expanse of concrete things. Material world. How big, son, would you like the sun to be? The son says, very big, Dad. <laughs> so he says, this is what we're going to create. And then he says to the son, um, but to bring creation back to perfection, because you see the possibility of imperfection exists. Mm. hasn't manifested yet, mm. but as long as it exists, it remains a danger. So, the world is, isn't that the world we grew up in? One of the first things you do when you start working is you take out life insurance, in case you die. Yeah, all kinds of insurance, in case. In case. Doesn't exist yet, but the possibility exists. And that's and enough. Therefore, Insured. Okay. So, this is all we understand, is that the fact is that before God created anything, the possibility of something less than perfect existed. And so he was going to rather let it manifest and get it over with and then exclude it from ever happening again. And he says to his son, now this is the point we want to get to, concentrate on this. This is the one thing that you need to have as a focal point. That he says to the son, you're going to die and I'll resurrect you. That's our plan. And the son says, okie dokie. Why would he do that? Why would that sound like a good plan to him? Because he knows his father. Mm. That's why it's important for us to understand that he's the word because the father expresses all to him. That's why the son can trust him. All is well. That's why he becomes the word. So he doesn't just accept. He doesn't say, okay, I hear what you're saying and it's okay with me. No, he accepts the Father's word, the Father's will, to the extent that he becomes it. That's why he's the word. And now, together, they're going to complete the will of the Father. He's willing to die because he trusts his Father. But, God Almighty is putting His trust in His Son to be faithful, obedient. He's putting His trust in His Son to love Him enough to do what needs to be done. And this is where we understand that God promises by Himself.
This is one of the most important truths in the Bible. God promises by himself. And see what, this, what happened now. We took the fact that if you speak to any Christian, you can reference them straight away to the fact that their experience of God is probably up and down. If they say, no, it doesn't happen to me, they're lying. Then you just say, look, just, why are you lying to me? But, okay, so, the fact is that if you wanted to witness to someone about the truth of the covenant, you can reference to them to the fact that that would have been the experience with God. And what did we just do? Now, we took it all the way back to the beginning because it references Abraham and the covenant. See what happened. Okay. Now, does everybody have this one reference point clear? Why is it so important? Because this is that this is the hope, and the covenant is the hope. Let's move on from there. We'll go back to Titus. Mm. Back to Titus. Okay, let's read chapter 1, verse 2 again. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So eventually we would like to take this back to the book of life and judgment because that's mm. where we are circling. And so just in this context, it becomes clear that eternal life is not just very strongly connected to covenant, but basically just as important as covenant because it was also promised by God, who cannot lie, before time began. Now, did God need to promise His Son eternal life? Did Yahushua need a promise of eternal life for the creation? Eternal life is not an issue if there is no sin. Am I right? So you see how significant this piece of information is? Okay. Let's just go right back. We're going to not do the rest of Titus then. Yes. Let's go right back to what we are busy with. Last week we said, in witnessing, we need to always keep in mind that the person we're talking to has a framework according to what they think and understand. Mm. And that framework is based on a linear timeline. And if we, want, if we don't bend their linear timeline for them, then we cannot help them to understand anything in the Bible. Their doctrine has to be static the way that it has been put in place by others for them on a linear timeline. So we need to, uh, we need to find a way to help them acknowledge the fact that we have, might have, understanding that they want or need. Mm. That's all we want to do. We don't want to, our job is not to try and push our understanding on them. So most people out there, whether they've been in church or not in church, they've got a vague idea that there'll be judgment one day. And they have a very sure idea that they'll be fine. <laughs> How they come to the conclusion, we don't know. Have you noticed how people, I went into the noon once, I think it was the first time I went in there, I encountered the guy on the street that was very drunk. And I said to him, do you know that all of this will pass away and that we will appear before God and for judgment? He said, yes. And I said, so are you concerned about this? He says, no, I'll be fine. I was like, how did you come to that conclusion? No, I believe in God. And that was it. That seems to be enough. That seems to be enough. And we've got to understand that's the mindset. Mm. Now, it gets worse when you're talking to someone that's been in church. Mm. Now, we're not saying in any way that people in other churches are lost. Yes. Yeah. When it comes to witnessing to people in other churches, we want to make sure that they, the basis of their belief in salvation is right and true. 
Because we've got to understand that Christians are worse. They also believe that it's just enough to believe in God. So we reference them back to the end, this judgment, so that we can, the purpose of it is so that we can connect it with the book of life. Because the moment you lift the book of life out of obscurity for them, you have just helped them discover something in the Bible that I can bet you they've never paid attention to. If you had to encounter even the pastors of the biggest churches in our area, you ask them to explain the book of life to you, no chance. Are we saying this out of pridefulness? It is a mystery. And the fact is, the book of life, the moment that they acknowledge what the Bible says about the book of life, they have to acknowledge that their entire structure for doctrine is invalid. Mm. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Okay. So we're going to close this off. And we'll continue with this again. It's better we, that we take a slower process mm -hmm. with this. Because I'm going to ask all of you to go meditate on the reality. Envision the different types of people that you could encounter. Remember we're going to now go into a phase of our lives where we start our day asking God for mm -hmm. opportunity. Asking God to give us an opportunity to witness to someone. And uh, what is it we want to witness to? What is it that we want to share? It will take different forms for different types of people. That makes sense? This will help us not fall into the old trap of yeah, if we can find someone that's hungry, then we can give them food, and then maybe we can find entry into their lives. Or, you know, those kind of things. We are, next week we're going to look more closely at judgment itself. How does it work? Who's judged according to what? Again, we have to have these things clear in our minds. But for now, go and meditate on the fact that the Bible, without a shadow of a doubt, says that God promised salvation before creation, eternal life. Why? Why? You see, this is, if you can cause that question in mm -hmm. someone else, why? See how easy it could be to open the door to witness to the actual salvation plan. What's the actual salvation plan? The Hebrews 6 scripture. Will you have some feedback from you? Yeah, it's a lot to take in. But it's like I said, when you go and witness the accountability and to tell people, for me, like you said, remember scripture and stuff. But if you understand the scripture, you can explain it better. Most of the times, I mean, I can remember scriptures, but I don't know what they really mean. So if you know the true meaning of it, it's better to explain to people about salvation and book of life and judgment. Thank you. That's good feedback. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the one thing we want to change and see change, mm -hmm. is that people don't run around with good intentions, yeah. mm -hmm. um, but that the information is actually good that they're giving. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think if you want to truly make
And the other thing I see a lot of men in the spirit. Mm. And to find that one thing is so healing. Um, that does very well too and caught up. But there's huge There's huge opportunity. Huge opportunity right now. Yeah, I know, but it's difficult to find the thing to say. Yeah. But do you under, so you see that instead of trying to give them a, a big lump of information, we want to yeah, activate it. Yeah. Something to hold on to, you see. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. For, th for the person that, um, that don't yet know that they actually is, uh, have a call from God, I believe that a piece of information that God promised eternal life before He started making the world it would be something that could comfort them and excite them. We want to get them interested. Because we've got to understand that people have a latent idea of the Bible that's completely wrong. Mm. And so they can't relate to it because it is that they've there's somehow people have been infused of a with an idea of what the Bible says and what God is about that's so wrong. And um and if we can get them curious, if we can just get them curious. So when whatever the opportunity is, use that opportunity to get them to talk to you again. And Again and again, that's the th big thing. Even the look with every, even if it looks like we're not getting anywhere with a person, every opportunity to gift them with a little mm -hmm. bit of truth, that was a big mm -hmm. opportunity. It's truth they didn't have before, and what they do with it is between them and God. Mm 